Well, again, good morning. Good morning and welcome. My name is George Davis. Great to welcome you this morning and see you on this beautiful fall day. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5. We'll get there in a moment. Acts chapter 5. As you are turning there, let me just also remind those of you who are members uh, that we have a congregational meeting this afternoon at 4 p.m. in the Core Cafe area where we're going to be talking about our 743 property. And we really do want to encourage those of you who are members to be a part of this conversation. And with that in mind, if you're not able to join us physically, we do have a Zoom link that's made available so you can join us remotely online. You'll find that at hfcinfo.com. So we're really thinking about next steps with this property, and we want you to be a part of that conversation and decision. Now, as we come back to our journey through the book of Acts, I want to ask you a question, right? We're following the history of the early Christian movement, and as we do that, we're also acknowledging that as followers, our identity in this relationship is, is shaped such that we are to be witnesses of who Jesus is and what he's done. So with, with that in mind, thinking about our identity as followers of Jesus in this movement, my question to you is this. If, if you were to describe Christianity in one word, what would that word be? If you were to describe Christianity in one word, what would that word be? Maybe, maybe the first word to come to your mind is, is love, right? God is love. Love is kind of central to the message of what God is doing through Christ. Or maybe the, maybe the first word to come to your mind is the word forgiveness, because you know, if, if you've been a follower of Christ over a long period of time, there have been moments where you've just had a deepening recognition of God's faithfulness and his forgiveness in your life. So maybe, maybe that's the first word that comes to your mind. But how about this word? How about the word life? And part, part of the reason I say that is this. Um, as we continue through the book of Acts... In, in Acts chapter 5, the message about Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ is described this way. It is described as a message of new life. But, but it's not any particular kind of new life, right? It's not simply a message of moral behavior. Furthermore, it's not a message of self-help. As Peter, one of the early Christian leaders, says earlier, this message of new life is rooted in Jesus, whom he describes as the giver of life. It's a message that that there's a storyline to history, that we've been created to know God, to be in relationship with him, and that that this design that is at work in each of us has been distorted by sin and rebellion, whether we realize it or not. But now through the work of Christ, we can experience forgiveness. We We can experience renewal. We can become individuals drawn into this rescue plan. And with that, we can experience a new sense of identity and purpose. 
And through our relationship with him, we become recipients of his spirit who, who actually comes into our life and, and can empower and transform us to empower us in relationships. He brings us into a community like this, and he's at work in our lives, empowering and encouraging us to be a part of what he's doing. Interestingly, in describing the work of God's Spirit, Peter will say this. He says, he says when, when the Spirit comes and when you become part of this, it is, it is a time, it is a season of refreshing. When, when I think about Peter communicating that in his message, I think about the original audience that would have heard that in Jerusalem, Right? So many of whom are people, they grew up in that area. They grew up in an arid climate. They grew up in an environment where it didn't rain six months out of the year. And during part of the year, you would know the reality of, of the dryness and the heat. And when you think about being refreshed, maybe your mind would go to places like this. It's a place called Ein Gedi, an oasis in the Judean desert that actually plays a significant role in biblical history. And Right? You think about <laughs> when you grow up in that kind of region, you just think about, right, you're right in the heat and the dryness. You just, you just want to jump in and be refreshed, right? You see a picture like, you just, just want to dive into that in the middle of the heat. And, and Peter says, look, the Spirit is coming. He's bringing this season of refreshment. But at this point, it, it, it's very natural for you to say, George, this is great. Okay, I get it. You, you know, I've heard all this before. But this is, isn't, this, isn't this rather an idealistic picture of Christianity? Isn't this a rather idealistic picture of what it's like to be part of a church. After all, maybe you would say, you know what, and many of us can say this, I've had some, <laughs> I've had some church experiences that definitely were not life-giving. Right? I've had some church experiences where, where it wasn't exciting to kind of plunge into what's going on. And interestingly, I think... Even as Luke, as he's writing Acts, really shows us the life-giving work of the gospel in very profound ways, he also shows us certain challenges that can get in the way, right? And that's what we're going to see this morning. Even as this early church was experiencing growth and vitality, there were also experiencing challenges. And our, our situation is very different than theirs, but these kinds of challenges can become roadblocks for us in following Jesus, even as they had the potential for being roadblocks in the first century. So what I want to do, just very briefly, is to kind of work through the different scenes in Acts chapter 5 and 6 and, and really show you three different challenges that if we're not careful, and if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're not careful, these can hamper... Uh, your experience as you seek to follow Jesus. So what I want to do, let me just give you a quick overview of what we're going to see, then we're going to look at these three challenges. So you get to the end of chapter 4, and you see the church working together, kind of caring for one another. It's kind of this powerful scene of what community looks like in this early church in Jerusalem. And then we get to chapter 5, and we encounter these 
people named Ananias and Sapphira, and they want to appear to be very charitable donors, right? They, they sell a piece of property and they communicate the, the idea that they're giving all the proceeds to the church community, but in fact, they're holding some back. And Peter, again, a leader in the early Christian movement, confronts them, says, you have lied to us, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. In dramatic fashion, they both die. And the story continues. The church continues to grow. Middle of chapter 5, you know, there's... Luke describes ongoing signs and wonders. The apostles are then arrested, and then they're dramatically released by an angel. But again, they're brought before the religious leaders who, if you'll recall earlier, had already told them you're supposed to be quiet. And they're kind of brought in, and, hey, guys, don't you remember we told you you were, you were not supposed to communicate this message of Jesus Christ? And there's that famous statement, right? We must obey God rather than human beings. And ultimately, even though the pressure is building for a moment, they are released. And so there seems to be just kind of a momentary respite in the challenges facing the church. But then, then as it appears, they've gotten over that hurdle, at least for the time being. Another complication appears in the opening part of chapter 6. Because as the church has grown, it's now included Jews from different backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. And there is conflict because the widows who kind of come from a, what, what you might call a Hellenistic background, a Greek-speaking background, they've been overlooked in the distribution of financial support for those in need. And it's created tension and conflict. And as a result, the apostles appoint deacons to ensure that these individuals are not overlooked moving forward. So we're going to see three challenges in these stories that were at work then that can be at work in your life and mine as well. But, but before we do that, let me just acknowledge a question that, you know, as we've been going through Acts that you may have, it's, it kind of even occurs related to things we see in these stories. And, and that question is this, so how are we to think about all these signs and wonders, Right. Depending on the vocabulary you use, you might say, you know, there's some really wild stories in the book of Acts. And there's even this phrase which occurs here in chapter 5, right? Signs and wonders, miracles, and, right? They're just some really unusual elements, right? Angel releasing people from prison, dramatic death of two people in the church lobby, right? I mean, how are we to think about this? And, Maybe you would even wonder, why don't we see that today, right? What about signs and wonders today? Well, let me, let me, just, let me just make two really brief observations, and I'm going to go through this quickly, so I'd let, if you just let me know, we can have a further conversation offline if you'd like. But, but I think the first observation is we, we need to understand that this really is a unique moment in God's plan. And, and if you pay attention to the flow of the Bible, you will see that, that miracles, for the most part, seem to be concentrated in certain times, right? They're concentrated around the time of the Exodus and the founding of Israel. They're concentrated in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, kind of the founding of the prophetic movement. And then they're concentrated in the Gospels and the book of Acts, in the life and ministry of Jesus, and, and the founding of the Christian church, of the Christian movement. 
Even these dramatic deaths really take place at a unique moment in history because, right, they take place at the moment when there's only one church. There's only one church, and that's the church in Jerusalem. And then in that founding generation, I think this scene has a powerful way of communicating the importance of holiness and obedience. So we need to understand the uniqueness of what we are reading in the book of Acts, just in the flow of God's plan. But having said that, secondly, I think we also, we also need to be open to how God might choose to work in our lives and in our moment. And I can't presume to always know what that will look like or even how dramatic it will be. Because I, I, can, I can tell you at least one situation in my life and ministry where, where I would say, that was a miracle. That there's just no other explanation. So I think we have to understand the uniqueness of the book of Acts, but we also have to be open to how God might choose to continue to work in us and through us. So with that in mind, let's now look more closely at the challenges in this passage. And what I want to do, we're not going to read all of these passages, but what I really want to draw your attention to is that there are three potential challenges at work here that can also be at work in your life. So three challenges, and the first is what you might call the internal challenge, and we see this in Acts chapter 5. Right? Uh, Again, Ananias, Sapphira, they sell this property, and uh, they bring money to the church community, and they imply that this is all of the money that are, that's been made from the sale of this property. And then we read this. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What, what made you think of, of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And I think that the flow of this conversation implies that maybe there was additional conversation that had occurred earlier where Peter kind of said, is, so is, is this all the money? That's great you sold the property. Is this all the money? Yep, yep, every last penny. Here it is. And we're just so glad we can be a part of what's going on in the life of our church. So what what was the problem here? I mean, again, as you read this story as it unfolds, both Ananias and Sapphira will, will die in dramatic fashion, which communicates the reality of God's judgment. So why were these actions so dangerous for the church? I think this first challenge is, is a challenge that we can experience. You might call it the internal challenge. And it's, it's the challenge of hypocrisy. Now, to, to understand what's going on here, we really need to go back to chapter 4. This is one of those places where maybe chapter breaks in our Bible do us a disservice because there is an implied comparison as you come to the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And the implied comparison is this. It's an implied comparison between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. 
Because at the end of chapter 4, you will read this guy named Barnabas, who will appear later in Acts as well. Barnabas is someone who sells the property that he owns and truly gives all of the money to the church to cover the needs of people within the church community as just an act of generosity flowing out of his relationship with God. And then here come Ananias and Sapphira. And in some sense, it's like, we, oh, wow, look at what he, he did. We want to look like we're doing the same thing. So they sell the property, but they hold part of it back. And again, what's the problem? What's the challenge? Well, I think a word we would use to describe it is it's the challenge of hypocrisy. Right? They're, they're pretending to be generous when they weren't. And so Peter says, you, you've lied not only to us, but the Holy Spirit. And you're like, well, how can they, what does that mean they lied to the Holy Spirit? Well, as we've seen already, ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the one who's empowering, motivating this early group of believers. He was the one bringing people together around Jesus' mission. He was the one encouraging the believers to respond to those in need and And now Ananias and Sapphira come along, and you know what? They're just faking it. Rather than serving God out of a really an attitude of gracious response and gratitude, they are trying to use God to gain a righteous reputation. You might say they're using religion to look and feel superior to others. And in doing so, they simply weren't lying to the other people in the church. They were living in a manner that contradicted the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. That's why this was so serious. That's why why Peter says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, here's where this story can get heavy for us if we're not careful. You might say, well, yeah, (laughs) I mean, we all kind of know the reputation that churches can have for hypocrisy and Christians can have for hypocrisy. And maybe you're here this morning and that's kind of your hesitation as well. You're kind of on the outside looking in and you would say, but one of my concerns about Christianity is, is the hypocrisy that I've seen in my family and churches. And, and I get all that. But here's where this can be really weighty for us if we're not careful. We can kind of read a story like this and say, well, you know what? I don't want to be a hypocrite. But in saying, I, want, I don't want to be a hypocrite, we, we may then end up saying, that means I've got to get it right every time, right? That means I've got to be that person just like Barnabas, who's just giving way over the top, who's giving sacrificially. And you know what? I'm, I'm just not sure I can measure up. And I think for some, this is, this, these are the messages they absorb in church. And so at some point, it's just, you know, just out of a desire maybe to say, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to live authentically. You just walk away because I'll never be able to reach the bar. However, remember what Peter says to Ananias, right? Dude, this was your property. You, you didn't have to sell it. And what Peter is saying is, this isn't about living up to a standard. This is about living in the reality of God's grace. 
And if you go back to chapter 4, verse 32, Luke is very intentional in saying this generosity, this is all being motivated. It's being driven by the work of God's grace in the lives of the people. So the answer to hypocrisy is not, you've got to try harder. You've got to reach the standard. The answer to hypocrisy is, let's be people who learn to live in the flow of God's grace. In fact, I think this, this gives us a helpful understanding of what really hypocrisy is, because one way to think about hypocrisy is this. Hypocrisy is living outside the grace of God. Right? I mean, the, the, these people in the church, ever so imperfectly, were learning to really live in the flow of God's grace, and it was liberating in so many ways. Right? Even though they're their, their external situation was getting more complicated. There, there was a boldness at work. There was a freedom in sharing Christ. Even though things were getting complicated financially, there was a freedom to be generous to others. All of this empowered by God's grace. And then we see, then we see Ananias and Sapphira, and they simply want to fake it. And can I suggest to you, if you're a follower of Jesus... There are going to be moments when you really face this internal challenge. And there are moments when it just becomes, we can become really comfortable. Just, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do what looks good on the outside. And I'm comfortable with that. And we feel like nobody will ever know. I know what others expect. I can fake it, but I'm not living in the reality of God's grace. So that's the first challenge that we can face. But, you know, as you read farther, there's this internal challenge, really kind of that we can experience at the core of who we are. But then there's also what you might call an external challenge that we see at work in the group, right? Again, the apostles are, right? The the apostles in the early chapters of Acts are kind of in and out of prison. They're in and out of getting pulled into the Sanhedrin, the religious elite, and and being reprimanded by them. And again, as this happens again in chapter 5, we read these words. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. (laughs) And, And again, you can't you just hear the tone in this? We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name. What about what, what of my previous talk to you did you not understand, right? Haven't we already told you? Stop talking about this, Jesus. Stop putting blame on his death on us. You are upsetting the status quo. So stop it. You filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And then Peter and other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. Now, in understanding this thing, I I think you need to understand part of the motivation of the religious elite. And I think this becomes clear as you read the rest of the passage. It becomes clear when this guy named Gamaliel gets up, one of the members of the Sanhedrin. And he makes reference to another rebellion, uh, rebellious attempt that had taken place in the life of Israel. So apparently part of the concern of the religious elite is this. You're... Your message can lead to rebellion. 
your message can lead to revolt. And that will upset the status quo that we have. That could bring down, that can bring down all sorts of heat from the Roman Empire. So we, we don't need you talking about this guy anymore. We don't, we don't need you stirring up potential trouble and insurrection. We need you to conform. We need you to help us maintain this equilibrium, this status quo that we have now established. So the external, right? So there's an internal challenge that they face that you and I can face. Really, it's, it's kind of the challenge of hypocrisy and the external challenge is really the challenge to conform. You need to fit in, right? Peter, you need to live according to cultural expectations. So no more, no more preaching about Jesus as the Messiah. Now let me ask you this. What about for us? In what ways do you and I feel cultural pressure to fit in? I think for some of us, you know, we feel that pressure, don't we, scrolling through social media? Right? Oh, wow, look at what they're doing. Oh, look at what he did. I, I mean, honestly, sometimes I just have to get off Twitter. Because, oh, look at, what, look at the latest thing he's done. Da, 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 da. And that's not helping. So what, what about you? I mean, even for some people, right, we end up, when we're online, creating a very different persona because... We know what other people expect, and we want to meet those expectations. So in in what ways do you kind of feel the cultural pressure to fit in? And sometimes, you know, it's like I don't even pay attention to it. It's just the air I breathe. For instance, in so many ways, we we receive cultural messages that say, really, who you are, your sense of identity is, is to be rooted in your achievement and the approval of others. Those are just common cultural values. And, and it can be easy, it can be easy for me to buy into them without ever thinking carefully or critically. For instance, think about this cultural message that, that you really, you are what you achieve. Right? That, in so many ways, that we get that messaging. And here's one of the tells, right? Here's one of the signs that I've <laughs> bought into that messaging. And that's this, I start keeping score. Right? I just naturally compare, compare myself to others. And there's just kind of a, you know, there's just a running scorecard in my head. And we do that, we do that in all sorts of different seasons in our lives. Right? I mean, how am I doing compared to other people, you know? How, how do my grades compare? Or, you know, do I have more friends than they do? Am I, am I in the right friend group? I, that's the group I want to be a part of. What about my job? Am I moving forward in my job? You know, there's the other guy at work. Look, he got, he got, he's been given these opportunities. He's been given these promotions. How, do, how am I doing? Career advancement. Then, you know, as we get older... I think as we get older, and maybe many of us start families, then it's, well, how are our kids doing? And what are our kids doing, right? We get in our group, so what's the update on your kids? And, well, here's, he's doing blah, 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 and, you know. And, well, mine's not doing quite that. And so we, 
we absorb this messaging that, that our identity is really rooted in our achievement. And, and you know, we, we, it just happens. It just happens. So naturally and consciously, we're not even perceptive that I'm absorbing these messages. It just feels like that's the way life is, right? I mean, earlier this week, I was in the gym, and at one point during the evening, I'm lifting, and the guy next to me is deadlifting 495 pounds. And what goes through my head? This is not helpful. This is not inspirational. This is not motivated. I'm never going to be able to do that. And he, he even made it look easy. You know, if he could have at least broken a sweat, that would have just been so much. You know, you know and, it, and, and we just naturally do that. I mean, I naturally do that without a sense of, well, look, what, what kind of messages are, are taking root in my life? And so there is this external pressure that is part of being a follower of Jesus that just encourages us to absorb the values that work around us to conform. But we need to realize this, as we absorb this pressure without thinking, as we just go with the flow, I think we lose our sense of identity that's rooted in our relationship with Christ. We lose our sense of mission and purpose. It's interesting, in, the, um, in 1944, uh, C.S. Lewis, as, as the Second World War was coming to an end and it became very clear the Allies were going to win, C.S. Lewis gave this fascinating talk at King's College at the University of London. And he was speaking to a group of students who were obviously getting a very elite education, students who were going to have all sorts of, you know, opportunities coming out of the Second World War to influence society, influence their culture, to, you know, do wonderfully well in their jobs and careers. And in this speech he gives to this, these elite students, he, he says, I want, in essence, he says, I want to warn you against a danger that is going to be lurking in your lives. And the danger he talks about is this. He calls it the attraction of the inner ring. And by that he means this. He says, as you're going to go through life, there's always going to be this pressure to be part of the in-group, to be part of the in-thing, whatever that looks like for you. And he describes, describes this in eloquent detail. And, and the, the line that, that he makes that I just find so memorable, memorable is this. He says, in essence, you will deal with this desire of the inner ring. And it will break your heart if you don't break it. And what he's describing in a very different way is the same pressure we see in Acts chapter 5. It's this, this pressure to conform, this pressure to just kind of go with the flow. And in, in the process to lose sight of who we truly are as followers of Jesus. So that's the external challenge. Very quickly, then, there's one more challenge. You, you, <laughs> you get to chapter 6, and, and, you know, again, it, it feels like, well, maybe the, the church has dodged a bullet as the, as the disciples are ultimately released from their interrogation. But then we get to a new complication at the beginning of chapter 6. And you might call this the community challenge. And here's what I mean by that. 
Acts chapter 6, verse 1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food. Now, here's what you need to understand culturally and historically. In the city of Jerusalem at the first century, there would have been a certain segment of the population that would have grown up in Israel and Palestine, and their, their primary tongue would be Aramaic, and, you know, their culture had been in so many ways defined by the experiences of growing up in that region. But there were also Jews who lived in Jerusalem at this time who came from other parts of the world. They had immigrated. They had grown up elsewhere, but they were now living in Jerusalem. And for many of these, their first language was not Aramaic. It was Greek. Furthermore, their cultural experiences had been different. And so these, these groups had just very different life experiences and different things that were meaningful to them. And not surprisingly then, the historical evidence suggests that in first century Jerusalem, there were specific synagogues that catered to these Greek-speaking Jews, where Greek would have been used. They were, these were the synagogue synagogues for the people who came from elsewhere. You get a clue to that even as you read the rest of chapter 6, and there's a reference to the synagogue of the freedmen, which had been populated by people from other parts of the world. But now through Christianity, these people whose lives up to this point had been very segregated, they're being brought together in this new community And in the course of being brought together, some of them have been overlooked in terms of their physical needs and their needs for support. So now there's tension. And the question is, how will these leaders handle it? And of course, the apostles come up with a creative solution. They say, well, look. What we're going to do is we're going to appoint deacons, and we're going to, these deacons are going to assume this ministry oversight, and they're going, to, they're going to take charge of this ministry to those in need of food and economic support. And so they appoint seven deacons, and it's important to pay attention to the names as you read chapter 6 because the names imply that they're Greek-speaking. So notice what they don't do. They don't become defensive. They don't argue. They don't say, our church is only for certain types of people. They don't lose sight of what, even in this moment of conflict, is all that they have in common as followers of Jesus. And I I think we need to realize this This is an ongoing experience of church because when the gospel, when the good news of Christ is at work, it brings different types of people together. It brings people from different backgrounds, different generations. And at times, this this requires creativity as a church to figure out, okay, how are we going to engage people from different backgrounds? How are we going to engage people in different seasons of life? For instance, even, you know, for us as a church... um, 
It's important in this season that we're in right now that we are taking intentional steps to say, how are we passing on our faith to future generations? How are we engaging young adults at a time and a season in their lives when it's so easy to avoid church or it is so easy to walk away? And those questions are challenging us to think creatively so that ultimately we become a truly multi-generational church. Even along those lines this week, we just wrapped up two uh, leadership, formational leadership cohorts with 20 young adults in our church and just had the opportunity over the last nine months to invest and build into them. So we've enjoyed that privilege. So we have to understand, we have to realize that in the church community, you know what, I'm going to encounter people that are different than me as the gospel works. At times that will be those different ethnically, those different generationally, those different politically, and we need to keep that in mind as we're coming up to an election. And in the midst of those differences, we cannot lose sight of what we have in common. So here are three challenges that were at work in the early church. Three challenges that can get in the way of how we follow Jesus Christ. And even though their situation is very different than ours, there are three challenges that can get in the way of our experience as well. The the internal challenge, right? The challenge of hypocrisy, the external challenge, the challenge of conformity, and then that challenge of community, which can at times be the challenge of dealing with conflict well. And so let me just leave you with a couple of questions this morning. As I've talked about this, first of all, are there are there places where you see these challenges at work in your own life? And secondly, even as you see these challenges, do you see the invitation to embrace this new way of life, this new kind of life, that the giver of life offers to you. And with that, do you see the invitation to live in the flow of God's grace? To jump in, to plunge in, to be refreshed. And so here's how we're going to close. We're going to close with communion. I'm going to invite our worship team back up, and I want to give you instructions. And then they're going to lead us in a song, and then I'm going to come back up, and we are going to celebrate this together. But as we celebrate communion, and we celebrate this reminder of the transforming work of Jesus Christ, as we celebrate the the work of his grace in our lives, here are a couple of things I want you to think about. 
first of all, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus yet. For instance, maybe you're one of those that's kind of been on the outside looking in because of the reality of hypocrisy that you've experienced. If that's the case, I, I, you know, I, I in no way wanted to deny your previous experience, but I just want you to know this invitation is to you even as it's to those of us who've already started this journey. It's an invitation to receive the, the gift of God's grace, to receive his forgiveness. And the Bible says that starts by acknowledging your need and putting your faith and trust in him. And that's something you can do today. And we're going to be available at the end of the service down front. And if you'd like to talk more about what that looks like, I'd just love to have that conversation with you. Second, let me just talk for a moment to those of us who've already started the journey of following Jesus. And that is, if, if there are particular places where you, you'd say, you know what, I'm really, here's where this, these challenges are hitting me right now. Maybe there's some real deep inconsistencies in my life where I've just gotten comfortable. And it's easy because, you know, I know how to do the church thing. I know, how to, I know what that looks like. And, yeah, I've just, I've gotten comfortable in that. Maybe it's an area of your life where you really need help from other people and working through something, but you just, you're afraid to do that because of what they might think. And, and you're afraid to do that because if you do that, then, you know, the facade has to come down. But let me remind you, Peter says, look, the, the work of the Spirit brings a season of refreshing And can I suggest to you that even in that area of your life right now, God's Spirit wants to bring healing and transformation. So if there are particular places where you are feeling kind of one of these challenges, as we celebrate communion, would you just kind of release that to God? Just acknowledge that as we sing over the next few moments and just say, Father... This is, this is a place where I need your grace to be at work. Now, as we sing, I'm going to ask for your help. If you'll notice, we've got uh, tables with the elements in front of the various sections. So as the music begins, right after I pray, I'm going to ask someone. In, I just need someone in your section, someone in your area to kind of be bold enough to get up and start distributing this to the other people. And this kind of helps us do this as a community. So just feel free, one or two of you, to get up around each table and then help distributing that to others. So with that in mind, let's pray together. Gracious God is as we've already seen, there's some just dramatic things that you did in the life of this first church, this early church in Jerusalem. But even as those amazing things were happening, there were also the realities of these challenges that they had to engage and challenges they had to work through. And the truth is, even as these challenges were present then, they can be present in our lives now. And for some of us fathers, we've, even as we talked about these, I think some of us just the at a gut level, we've said, yeah, that's what's at work in my life right now. That's a, that's a challenge that I'm seeking to work through. And Father, where that is present, I just pray that your spirit would remind us that we're invited into this journey of grace. 
and that this challenge is a place for your grace to be at work. So may we be open to what that looks like. May we be open to the ongoing work of your spirit because he is the one who brings the season of refreshing. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.